You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. My name is Blair, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be sharing um, not not the last, but the second last message in our summer sermon series, uh, The Great Cloud of Witnesses, stories from uh, great faith from Hebrews chapter 11. Um, I was reading a book with my son Jasper this week, a book from the library, one of those small nonfiction ones that you can get to learn about um, sharks or race cars or whatever. And this one was about hockey because Jasper loves hockey. And the book was called Hockey Crazy. And if you, if you flip over the back, it asks a question. It says, are you crazy for hockey? Of course you are. I was surprised to learn that I was crazy about hockey. And it tells me right there I am. So, okay, so me and Jasper, a couple of hockey crazy guys reading this little story, learning facts about hockey. So uh, one of the pages uh, described a particular game in 2008, uh, which blew my mind so much so that I haven't really stopped thinking about it since, and I thought I would share it with you guys too. It was an Olympic qualifying game between Slovakia and Bulgaria. Um, uh, for the women's teams, national women's teams. Um, Slovakia beat Bulgaria 82 to zero. <laughs> I think Matt just spat out his coffee. Yeah, that's, that was my reaction too. 82 to nothing, 82 goals. That's more than a goal per minute. Every 44 seconds on average, Slovakia was scoring on Bulgaria so I was laughing and laughing trying to picture this. In a normal hockey game, if you put both team scores together, it's still usually under 10 goals. This was 82 goals, the highest scoring game in IIHF records. Um, some of you maybe had heard of this, but I certainly hadn't, or at least I'd forgot about it. But uh, I was laughing about this, but, and imagining Bulgaria staying home and Slovakia uh, carrying on to qualify for the Olympics. Um, good for them. But there's an ironic twist to this story and once you get to 2010, Vancouver Olympics. Uh, Slovakia is there because they won 82 to nothing against Bulgaria. But in the first round, uh, who do they play? Team Canada's women's team. And suddenly the tables turn and Slovakia doesn't win, but they lose 18 to nothing against Team Canada. Very sad for Slovakia, but for Canadians, we were celebrating and cheering on the women as they went to uh, win gold that year. Friends, this goes to show that one victory does not necessarily secure the next, okay? Because you win one landslide does not mean that you are promised to win again. Just because you beat Bulgaria does not mean that you will beat Canada, okay? (laughs) Uh, So... We've, we've heard all kinds of victories this summer, stories of faith from Hebrews 11, and it started to feel a week after week like a landslide victory, hasn't it? As, as uh, time and time again, stories of power and God's salvation coming through. Uh, we've uh, heard this passage, and I'll read it again. What more can I say? Time is too short to tell me about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, they quenched the raging of fire, 
They escaped the edge of the sword. They gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Hallelujah. These are victories that happen when we place our faith in a mighty God. This is the life that we will see God's power on display, and we praise God for these victories. So this summer has been exciting and encouraging. But this is where the bad news comes in. (laughs) In fact, I don't even want to be the one to break it to you. I don't want to kill the hype, so I'll let the author of Hebrews do it for us if we keep reading where we left off. Um, in, In verse 35, I'll read to verse 39 and see what we can make of it from there. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release, so that they may gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds of imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they died by the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All of these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. After hearing all of the other examples, we arrive at the end of the list and hear this, and I want to scream, no, no, what about the victories? What about a great faith in a great God? I thought that faith was a good thing resulting in more good things, not mockings and beatings and and being sawn in two and wandering in deserts and things like this. What is going on? I think we like to imagine that because we see the victory, 82 to nothing, that things will only go up from there and that we can't lose. But this is a one-dimensional approach to faith. It's not a, a mature approach to faith. It's one that says that if, if, I, if I have enough faith, I will always be on the winning side in this lifetime. Now, of course, we are on the winning side because of Jesus' victory. But in this life, we are not promised comfort and ease. The scriptures do not tell us this. I think that we misunderstand, when we, see, we, we, we misunderstand faith when we see it as a thing that results in guaranteed outcomes. Right? Like, if we have faith, I will get this or that. Some of us try this from time to time. We believe this for a while, and it, and it works as long as we are getting what we want, as long as uh, things are working out, but then things inevitably fall apart. We face a different challenge, a different circumstance, something more difficult than what we thought we could face in the past. And in this place, we find that we need even more faith than we did before. In the darker circumstances, more faith in God will be required of us. So to me, the end of Hebrews 11, or almost the end, is a reality check for us. That evidently, faith does not always result in obtaining what is promised to us, as it said in verse 39. They were approved by faith, though they didn't obtain what was promised. What does this mean? Again, I want to be clear that yes, in this life, we will see Uh, God's power at work. You know, we've dedicated almost the whole summer to those stories from Hebrews 11, and this is worth celebrating. And so we are encouraged. But this morning, the related truth, the other side of the coin, the less appealing truth, is that there are many faithful servants of God 
in scriptures who were despised, who were mistreated, who lived in discomfort or pain, and who died far too soon. I love how verse 38 says the world was not worthy of these faithful men and women. It's like a sinful world could, uh, could not bear the, the holiness of, of God's servants, and so they, uh, they died too soon, so to speak. Now, when it comes of, to exactly who the author is speaking of, there's lots and lots and lots of examples to suggest and explore because it's kind of just a list. So it's hard to say. It's hard to say if, if the author of Hebrews is even limiting his examples only to the Old Testament because the New Testament has many as well. But for this morning, since the prophets were mentioned after, after the judges and King David, we're going to focus on, on some of the prophets. I won't read their stories, but just for examples really quickly... The prophet Jeremiah from the Old Testament was beaten and held in, in stocks uh, by a priest, actually, named Pasher. And then he was beaten again and held in a dungeon under a King Zedekiah. These are from the book of Jeremiah. An earlier prophet in Second Chronicles, Hanani, was treated similarly to Jeremiah. He was beaten and went to prison. Another prophet, Micaiah, in First Kings, experienced the same things, more beatings and prison, it's believed that both Jeremiah and Isaiah died by, by being sawn in two, which is, which is terrifying, and the, the author listed that. That's the only reason I would even say that. <laughs> it's there. So there's a theme here, and it's when you grow up, you don't want to become a prophet. Find something safer to do, because the Old Testament prophets, as well as the apostles in the New Testament, the disciples all suffered, mostly all suffered, um, very horrendous fates for their faith. Even Elijah, in Second Kings, though he ascended to God and did not die, um, you know, in his life it says that he dressed in, in those humble clothes, sheepskins and goatskins, like, like the author was talking about in Hebrews. An utterly humble existence devoted only to God and his service. So as we read these types of things, for many, if not all of us, they feel foreign and unfamiliar. They're, like I said, they're terrifying and somewhat offensive. Maybe some of us have experienced some of these things. I'm not sure. But in any case, as the author writes to the people in the book of Hebrews, they would actually feel some comfort and familiarity in what they're reading about these examples of faithful people. If we... Uh, think back to Hebrews chapter 10. We haven't covered it this summer, but just the chapter before 11, uh, we can read this, 32 to 34. It says, remember early, the earlier days when after you'd been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. At other times, you were companions to those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you knew that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So the early church and the church around the world today evidently could not equate faith in God with worldly health and wealth, and neither should we. Faith does not always or necessarily result in temporary, worldly comforts. Faith does not mean that because we have it, we can coast through life feeling accomplished because we are close to God and, and that you know, everything will work out circumstantially. 
Having more faith does not mean that life will be easier, even in a spiritual sense. I was thinking about this, how the prophets were arguably the closest people to God, but their life must have required the most faith, right, to follow through with what God had called them to. So their intimacy with God didn't result in a spiritual laziness or a lack of faith, but, but even more because they needed it just to get up in the morning and do what God was calling them to do. They were aware of their need for God. So having said that, more faith will, in a sense, cause us to need more faith. Having some faith will point us to a place where we require more faith beyond that. And this is especially true when we experience hardship in life. As I thought about this, the life of the prophets and their afflictions and what they experienced, I was reminded of what Henry Nouwen describes as the process of downward mobility. Downward mobility. What this essentially means is that following Jesus is to walk opposite of, to the power structures of this world. Right? Jesus goes against the flow of worldly power and wealth and so on. In the selfless way of Christ, he says it like this. We are taught, this is cultural, he says, culturally we are taught to conceive of development in terms of an ongoing increase of human potential. Progress, right? Growing up means becoming healthier, stronger, more intelligent, more mature, more productive. Consequently, we hide those who do not affirm this myth of progress. However, the story of our salvation stands radically over and against this philosophy of upward mobility. The gospel radically subverts the presuppositions of our upwardly mobile society. So this is an explanation of why we can be confused when we read about God's faithful people in scriptures experiencing much difficulty because culturally we've been conditioned to assume that as we go through life we will progress, we will become stronger, and then we graft that onto our spirituality with God thinking that it's one and the same. But that's just not true. A better relationship with God does not mean an easier, more comfortable life. The way of Jesus is not upward mobility towards worldly progress, kingdoms and power and wealth in that sense, but the opposite, downward towards humility, self-giving love, ultimately to his sacrificed life on the cross. So again, we mustn't continue to equate greater faith in God with a more comfortable life. If we do this, we will be disproportionately frustrated with God when he allows faithful ones to endure suffering of any kind. So our passage today in Hebrews 11 is an important reminder to us, a reminder that I think we all continuously need, certainly I constantly need to be reminded to reorient myself away from the upward mobility mindset of culture and towards the way of Jesus through the gospel. And in doing this, we'll find that our ideas of success and failures all too often are based in worldly ones rather than gospel ones, eternal ones. So as we read and receive this morning, may we have new hearts which follow the way of Jesus by the power of his spirit. I hope that, I hope that we will come to difficult passages like this one today just with, with open hearts to hear, to ask the Lord what we have to learn from him today.
ask him how we can perhaps have faith like the prophets who suffered for the sake of God, for the sake of Christ. As I prayed about this this week, I, I felt there were three lessons to highlight and draw out from our passage that would be uh, useful for us as we look at the lives, especially of prophets and their faithfulness to God. First and, f- and most obviously, basically what we've been talking about is that faithful lives on display in the scriptures show us obedience to God in spite of the cost. Faithful lives to God display an obedience to him in spite of the cost. And this is an idea that we've covered before. If you've been around the gate or if you've basically read any of the scriptures, you know, we, we went through the Gospel of Luke last year, so we talked about the cost of discipleship. See, salvation in Jesus is absolutely free. God loves you. There's nothing you can do to buy his love and his grace is for you. You can't earn it. It is a gift, absolutely free to receive. But discipleship to Jesus will cost you, at least in the temporary sense, right? This is, again, that natural downward mobility of the way of Jesus that we've been talking about. And so the ongoing challenge for us is whether we continue to choose to live by faith when it gets us into trouble, basically, right? Will we continue to have faith when it is hard to live that way, when it's difficult to do? The cost of discipleship. Jesus tells his disciples this in Matthew 16, that if anybody wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. You see, there are things in this world that if we are clinging to, we will not have open hands to God. If we cannot let go of our comforts in this lifetime, how are we ever going to actually pick up our cross and carry it? But the good news that Jesus says is whoever loses his life for his sake will find it. This is why faith is so important, though, because when we talk about the cost of discipleship, without faith, it doesn't make sense at all, right? It makes no sense unless we have faith in this gift of salvation through Jesus. But once we place our faith in Jesus, God allows us to live for him no matter the cost because our prize is greater than anything that the world gives. Our life with Jesus is eternal, and we are blessed to enjoy that life now. But whenever our life on this earth ends, we are secure knowing that our soul is with God through Jesus. So there will be difficulty as we choose to put our faith in Jesus and obey God in this life. But as Charles Spurgeon says, cost what it may, it is worth the cost. The second lesson for us, after we count the cost for ourselves, is the idea of serving God by serving others, moving outwards into the world to minister in faith to other people. You see, the faith of the prophets uh, caused them not necessarily to just sit alone and, and meditate and dwell with God, although they did a lot of that. But they served God's kingdom by speaking the truth and doing what God asked them to do for the sake of others. And the question is, will we do the same? Do we do the same? Does our faith in God cause us to move, to tangibly love our friends and our enemies 
our families and our neighbors. Isaiah, one of the prophets that we've uh, mentioned a few times already, he was willing to do this. Uh, His answer to God was uh, yes. He responds to God's call like this in Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. This prayer is a uh, scary one to pray. If you have faith to pray this, it is sometimes terrifying. But it is a prayer that will change your life. And it will change the lives of those around you as you continue to say yes to God and follow him. Here I am, send me. So are we open to this, to the ministry of of Jesus, to others in the world as God leads us to love them? Again, from the selfless way of Christ, uh, now and says, we are called to speak to people, not where they have it together, but where they are aware of their pain. Not where they are in control, but where they are trembling and insecure. Not where they're self-assured and assertive, but where they dare to doubt and raise hard questions. In short, not where they live in the illusion of immortality, but where they are ready to face their own broken, mortal, and fragile humanity. As followers of Christ, we are sent into the world naked, vulnerable, and weak. And thus we can reach our fellow human beings in their pain and agony and reveal to them the power of God's love to empower them with the power of God's spirit. As we obey God, as we place our faith in him, this is the opportunity that we are going to have time and time again to meet others with the Holy Spirit, with the love of Jesus, and minister to them. This is especially true, as now highlighted, in the broken places of life where people are aware of their pain, basically where, when people become uh, aware of the, their need for a Savior. We know the Savior, and he is Jesus, and we can serve them in that way. So the first lesson from the prophets is to count the cost, and the second one is to have faith that uh, outwardly moves us in obedience to that call, right? Mobilizes us. And the third thing to highlight from the prophets and their suffering, their their difficulty in life, is that they follow God and minister to others because they believe and understand that God's will extends beyond what they can accomplish in their own strength. They believe in the power of what God is doing in their midst in spite of their circumstances. God's good plan for creation includes human beings like us in order to shape history to shape the world for his glory. So this means that the suffering of faithful people, though it may be terrible, it is never pointless. Suffering is terrible, but is, it is not pointless. And so our faith, especially in difficult times, we should remember is a part of God's bigger plan. Romans 8 explains some of this to us in verse 26 and 28. It says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. It amazes me to think that God is so powerful that he uses even our weaknesses, our failures and sufferings and pain, for something good. 
And as we hold fast to the promise of this verse, we need to understand that, uh, as the apostle writes, it's, it's not based on our purposes. Um, it's, it's God's purpose. If your Bible has footnotes, it might remind you that some translations and manuscripts of verse 28 says that God works together in all things for the good of those who love him. He works together in all things. And Paul experienced this, which is why he could teach it. Um, He endured so many difficult things for the sake of Jesus. But he understands that God uses all those for the good of those who love God. Another footnote in our Bibles might uh, remind us for the word good in verse 28, that this word refers to the ultimate good. Right? So again, this promise is not that we're going to experience nice and good-feeling things in life because of our, our life after Jesus. No, it's the ultimate good, the glory of God's good, the eternal good that God is working in creation in his timing. And this is what we place our hope in. And so again, faith is required this is a mystery that, that requires faith, but as we believe it and experience it in our lives, we will be encouraged, especially when we suffer. Uh, in Matthew 13, Jesus says, Blessed are your eyes because they do see and your ears because they do hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see the things you see, but they didn't see them. To hear the things you hear, but they didn't hear them. You see, the prophet's faith in God was at work even though they didn't even see the fulfillment of what they were prophesying in their lifetime, right? Old Testament means (laughs) pre-Jesus. So all those prophets in the Old Testament, they spoke the truth, they served God, they believed, but it was a longing. They had not yet received it. Because Jesus had not yet come, but they believed in it. They served the Lord for his glory and offered their obedience, knowing that that their work, their faith had an impact beyond that time and place. Because God uses us in that way. So again, first as we uh, are challenged by the prophets and their lives and their fates in the world, This shows us that there is a cost to faithfully following God in this life. Secondly, it teaches us that faith in God will move us towards obedient action that ministers to others by his grace. And third, that our faith in God is a part of God's much bigger plan and that he purposefully uses our difficulties, the hardships of life on earth for an eternal glorious part of his plan. How are we doing? It's kind of hard. (laughs) It's hard stuff. Um, I want to remind you that Pancake Sunday is coming. (laughs) And next week, um, as we actually conclude Hebrews 11, um, the hope the encouragement and the celebration is just going to get cranked up through the roof. Okay, so although 
there is a reality check at the end of all this great cloud of witnesses. We kind of come down to this point and, and we wrestle with it. Um, that's not the end. And even as we do wrestle with it, again, I'll remind us that Jesus has won the victory and that our struggles in this life are temporary because of the uh, eternal worth of what we've been given in Christ. But again, please come back next week. We fix our eyes on the assurance of what we hope for, and that is Jesus. Even while we have not received that end prize of the perfect, restored life that we hope for, we know that we are saved into that, that we have assurance of God's glory. It's ours, thanks to Jesus and his death on the cross. And this matters at all times, but especially when we do face and endure hardships in this life. And when we do, don't let those experiences shake your faith in God and his power to save, but rather draw all the nearer to God with your faith. Remember the church from Hebrews chapter 10 who endured their suffering with, with joy because of what they knew that they had been given in Jesus. It mattered so much more than what they experienced in their circumstances. This reward of Christ. In Philippians 3, uh, we can read this, that indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which depends on faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I might know him in the power of his resurrection and might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I might obtain the resurrection of the dead. So again, rather than feeling allergic to suffering, let us understand that as we suffer, this is an opportunity to actually become like Jesus, united with him in his own suffering and his death. And as we do this, we set our hope on the resurrection of Jesus. We find our hope in the cross. Uh, we look to our Savior who has won that ultimate and final victory, regardless of whatever battles we face in this life, Jesus has won. And he won not by uh, human might and strength, but by a supernatural, God-ordained sacrifice of his own life. And even in our darkest and most desperate circumstances, whether that's a memory for you or maybe you are in a dark and desperate circumstance, you can see that Jesus is a Savior who is like us, except that he is perfect in his suffering. We share in his sufferings, understanding that he shares in ours. Right? Jesus voluntarily took the sin of the world upon himself to free us from it. And nothing compares to this. And so it is Jesus that we worship and we lift up each and every week, each and every day as we follow him with thankful and humble hearts. Amen.